Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, welcome along to episode 89 of the Howie Games, featuring one of Australia's most positive, warm and engaging athletes, surfer Sally Fitzgibbons. But do not be fooled by the happy exterior. Just below the south surface is a ferociously competitive animal who spends most of every day trying to get better and better and better. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. From a young age when she was a grom living life on a boogie board to a power athlete surfing some crazy, crazy big waves, Sally has been someone to never leave anything in the tank. Her record on the World Surf Tour is outstanding. In a 10-year professional career, Sally's notched up 11, 11 event tour wins, has been ranked number one in the world six times and has finished runner-up in the world title race three times. And the onside announcer has called this here to an end and Sally Fitzgibbon's love affair with Brazil continues. Wow. She is the OI Rio Pro champion for 2019. Woo-hoo. She continues her hot streak as the world's most successful surfer in Brazil on the women's side of the draw. Look at that smile, the contentment. You can see it in her face. There was absolute contentment. All the work, all the effort, the years of commitment and dedication playing off there. The Finally, she gets to that point where she can come to groups with it and celebrate, and the arms go up. Well done, Sally Fitzgibbon. However, to this point, Sally hasn't yet claimed a world title, and she is really, really frank brutally honest, in fact, in the episode about how it feels to get so close to the ultimate numerous times to only just miss out time and time again. Sales is a lesson in getting up and going again and again and again and again. She also talks about life on tour, surfing through the pain barrier, fear, photo shoots with the King Kelly Slater and plenty more. Can't they see the older key could make things better if they try? Oh my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? In many ways, Sal's attitude, her personality and her entire approach to life and her sport is one most of us would like to have. She's positive, grateful, happy, warm and very, very approachable. Basically, all the good stuff in life. This is a lady who will put, I guarantee, who will put a smile on your dial. And as you're about to hear, she loves the podcast, which makes me rate her even higher. Welcome to the wonderful world of Sally Fitzgibbons. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on, children, tread with me. We want to reach Mount Sinai. Welcome to the Howie Games from southern New South Wales. The legend that is Sally Fitzgibbon. Sal, how are you going? Howie, this is monumental. You don't even <laughs> understand. Even in our, like, pre-chart to get this combo rolling, yep. you don't understand how big it is. And how big a part of my life you've been. Not in the, <laughs> in the weirdest way possible. <laughs> I've been a Howie Games listener um, since the very beginning. Have you? And Yes, from the very beginning. And I thought, I thought one day I wanted it to authentically wind its way into my life. That, and I haven't done a long-form podcast to this day because... I've kind of been waiting for this moment. That this no pressure. Be, <laughs> no this pressure be now. My, 
No, I feel like, you know, I was listening to Lisa Healy's app and I feel like when she went to play golf with Kari Webb and the first 16 holes that, that she hit worm burners the 16 holes and she was just going, I can play off nine. Like, I play good. So I'm hoping the first 16 questions, um, I'm not in a shambles. I'll contain my froth. Well, I'm absolutely pumped you listen to the show. Obviously, you do a lot of travel. What, what have you taken from it along the way? Which ones have you enjoyed? Well, I think the best part of it has been that you've, I guess, um, traversed a lot of big milestones in whether it's my behind the scene travel to get to events, um, especially, say, last year when I was broken down in the middle of the desert trying to find a wave pool or I was by myself trying to drive myself to an event and it was like getting, you know, I'm in Europe and it's it's really like tiring and I'm the only driver and I have to jump out of the car and do star jumps and listen to the rest of the podcast to get me amped. Um, so I've been, you, you name it, any tour stop, there's a backstory of me listening to an app and getting, I guess, um, empowered and so like that. Our Aussie community, our athletes, our web, like they've had some version of that going on and that sort of inspired me to kind of carry on with um, whatever disaster or whatever success I was like, facing. So it's pretty cool. I've, um, I've really enjoyed the listen and your soothing tones and conversations have gotten me through many big moments. Well, you are now my favourite guest on the show and we haven't even started. So I really appreciate that. It, it fills me with joy to think you're listening to it and hopefully spreading the word. You travel a lot of places, so you've got to tell people for me, so you've got to spread the word. Oh, I've been out there. I've been, yeah, I've been your wheels. I've just sort of, any time in a convo, I'm like, you know, in this podcast, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not the most tech genius kid. And so when they hear it come, they were like, when podcast first came around, people were like, what a podcast? What do you mean? And I was like, if you want to get your sport yarn fixed. And I think for me, it was so natural to tell into this form of, of listening and storytelling because I was always on um, like talkback radio listening to footy games or sporting events because I couldn't always get the vision um, when tech wasn't as good as it is now. And so, yeah, this uh, that was the, the big thing. Like when it came around that podcasting uh, was available, I was just all in. I was like, this is my jam. Well, you're going to be pumped because uh, in a couple of days' time, and I know you love all sorts of sports, we're sitting down with Chris Scott, obviously the coach of your favourite footy team in the AFL, the Cats, so make sure you're keeping your out for that one, Sal. Go the mighty Catters. <laughs> oh, don't get me started, Howie. <laughs> People will have seen and heard already from the start of this show how amazingly positive you are. Before we get into your surfing journey, were you born positive or it's something you've taught yourself along the way? I'm not too sure. I believe that maybe my energy and enthusiasm about how I go about things, it's not forced and I don't have to really try. So sometimes I think, where does it come from? <laughs> and I, I think maybe being a Jaroa kid, South Coast, yep. and like I was saying, most of my days are spent um, out of my craft or training, land training, water training. So when you pop out of that bubble and you see someone, it just gets me really excited. I don't know. I just like, end up asking him. I, my favourite is just asking him to this day, what are you having for dinner? <laughs> That's your own Yeah. Well, you lead in after the niceties and you're like, hey, how's it going? Blah, 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 blah. Talk about the surf in general. And then I feel like that snapshot, I don't know if the, your listeners would be the same, but it tells a lot about a person and what mood they're in and how much time, whether you've got kids or no kids, 
Um, and because maybe because we're athletes and half the time you're starving when you're in the surf and you're thinking about what you're going to eat next, you're wondering what other people are going to eat. So, so what are you um, having for dinner? <laughs> oh, tonight? Yeah. Well, I've been, the Fitzy Kitchen has been whipping up a storm. <laughs> Fitzy Kitchen. <laughs> the Fitzy First kitchen. you compared yourself to Federer and now you're third person yourself with the Fitzy Kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, everyone laughs when they think, when I actually say that I do have a cookbook and they're like, they think I'm joking. And I was like, no, I actually whip up a kind of an okay feed. So I've been um, experimenting a lot, but a lot of veggie patties to kind of between sessions because you don't want to get heaps full because you get sleepy yeah and then so you want to be able to like go from gym and then straight to the water so whatever veggies in the fridge it just i don't know there's no recipes normally it just you look in the fridge and you go pumpkin and then go surf and come out and you're like oh my gosh i'm gonna make like the most badass pumpkin carrot <laughs> soup and bam it happens well she's lentil soup at my place tonight oh really mm. Mm, not prepared by me, though. I can assure oh, you of that. It's not my strong point. Well, I'll just put in a roast because then you can smell it all day. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So where to start for you? You talked about growing up in a, in a small town, Jaroa uh, down there on the coast, but you're into all sorts, all sorts of sports. I can only imagine you as a six-year-old buzzing around the house, but you're pretty good at all sorts of things, so without being... Um, Without talking yourself up too much, you were pretty cool. I've already put tickets all over myself. Yeah, with that's good though. I'll just keep going. So I, I feel as though our generation, a female athlete, that is now the current um, world stage, whether it's Elise Pezzas or Healy's or you pick a sport, we have the common thread, especially after listening um, to a lot of their kind of um, stories of their beginnings and the environment and it was all about play and we I don't know and we all had this imagination but we played every sport and I, my towing came from having three older brothers so if there's four kids you kind of have to to go with the flow you're getting put in the car anyway mm-hmm. so I would get to all these whether it was nippers touch footy soccer hockey that didn't matter I'll just go and then just pull out the permission slip and be like, hey, mum, dad, I need 10 bucks. I need 40 bucks for Rego. What's, what's a check? I need a check. What's that thing? And that, that was true all the way from, oh, gosh. Like I picked up a board and a boogie board at three and four. But whenever you could sign up from five, six or seven um, for all the other things, like soccer and nippers, like I did it. So um, it was just the flow it was just the way we played it was our daycare it was our entertainment it was everything we needed um to really bother ourselves with and and that's a testament to our parents what's the first board you remember falling in love with or surfing all the time as a little grom oh I feel as though boogie boards is a rite of passage because it, it had all the fun without the lethal element of being yes. either, either cut by fins. I don't know how many fin shops you've had and your kids have had now. Lots. But it had all those things but without the carnage, I feel. And so your boogie board you could use as like a skim board, as like pulling the clothes out barrels, you could try and stand up, you could spin around, all those kind of things. And as a grom, you could carry it. So, because <laughs> that was the big thing. Like you start on the big um, long boards. Yeah. And then for a moment, you need to be like, Dad, come on, Dad, they're going down. Like you got to carry my board. 
and down here on the coast we have these really strong nor'easters so people would just see me when everyone got tired me trying to drag the big long board and then I'd just get whipped around on the beach by the nor'easters and so that was a quick transition into a short board because I was like I need something I can carry fast I know what you're talking about like getting my two kids to the beach and you've got your own board and then their two boards under your arms down here you need the wetty so you're trying to get them into the wetsuits it's a 20 minute (laughs) operation just to get from the car park down towards the beach Oh, I need the wet the wetties. Uh, oh my gosh! Everyone always says the dream is to wear bikinis in the tropics. No, the tropics are out to get you because they either sting you, cut you, <laughs> uh, endless rashes from your boards and wax. And so for me, the dream wetsuit is like either the full suit or short arm, long leg, and the chest zip one where it zips at the front. I was um, I remember being a kid, and that you can attest to this one, Howie that a, a wet wetsuit is oh. the hardest thing to put on and it was just that painstaking like oh it was sandy and cold and it can put you off a surf a lot of people know it can put you off a surf and so I, I put it down I laid down the challenge I said to my dad I said I'm gonna work so hard that I'm gonna have so many wetsuits that I never have to put on a wet wetsuit just like Kelly Slater I saw an interview and Kelly Slater he would never put on a wet wetsuit so you were chasing and, the early sponsorship so you had a few weddies lined up. But, uh, it was a big dream. Running. You were, you were a pretty good runner. You went to the Youth Olympics. Tell me about your running career. Did you see oh. Freeman run in Sydney? Yes, I was there. I you were actually the there, were you? Yep, I was two rows from the back, so I was hanging on the actual rafter of the – I know you, you snuck into all the big Olympic Yeah, I snuck moments. into that one. Yeah, yeah, I, I was um, so I was chuckling when I listened to that, and I was I was swinging off the rafters, so we're all there, and it was so high. I remember uh, it was like doing one of those stairmasters because it had the extra stand on um, on ANZ Stadium at that stand, <laughs> that point. Oh, so, so they was, could yeah, well, so they could get the hundred and ten thousand in there, hundred thirteen thousand yeah. for Kathy. That's it, and so I was pretty much Google Maps. I was like, could take the imagery. But I just thought that was the best thing I'd ever seen. The stadium was just roaring. Uh, as a 10-year-old, it was almost that you just, your hair stand on end because it's almost a little bit scary in a sense that you're trying to piece it all together why this is such a big moment. And then just seeing her burn around the track in the spacesuit, uh, I was just, at that point when she finished, I had um, my hat, I love wearing my hat, so I, I was like the backwards hat kid. I was just the ultimate tomboy. And then uh, I was like, do you think, do you think I can get down there and get Kathy to sign my hat? And my parents were like. So ambitious. <laughs> they were like, oh, she's a little bit busy right now, Sarah. Like, this is... and, and they said, maybe one day you will be able to um, find her again, you know. And so I, I bawled all the way home on the train. I was just crying like she did sign my hat. Uh, and then I only had to wait another, uh, well, so I was 10, so only another 17 years, and I f- tracked her down, and I got Kathy to sign my hat at our Olympic readiness camp, so yep. this is our two-year process and um, to get ready for the games coming, and she came in. She didn't know what she was walking into, but I had my, <laughs> when I saw it on our schedule, I had my texter in my, in my pocket and my hat that I wanted signed, and I was like that nervous little kid, and... <laughs> went up and and i just bawled i lost it i was just like can, can you sign my hat and so i see you're in oh, tears again 
Yeah, I was in tears. I was. She didn't really know what was going on, but she hugged me anyway, so it was pretty special. <laughs> so what was the plan, Sal, when you were going through school? You're running, you're surfing, playing touch footy as well. Was it, I want to be a professional athlete, and if it wasn't, was there something else you planned on doing along the way? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I tried to backtrack a little bit and think to myself, Really, everyone always says, wow, like what you're doing now on the world stage of surfing, you must have dreamed of being that when you were a kid, like a world champion. And I was thinking back and racking my brain and I definitely remember the moment where in my day where I'd wake up before school and I'd start running laps of Jiroa and then I'd hop on my BMX and then I'd do laps and go over like (laughs) make my track and then I had the boxing bag like hanging off um, underneath like where our garage was. I'd go over to the tree and just start doing my chin-ups because I saw it in Blue Crush. I thought that was Blue epic. Crush, one of the great <laughs> films. Beside Point Break, Blue Crush, hard to beat. It was the best thing that ever came into <laughs> my vision, my sight. Blue and Crush. Then I'd skip rope, I'd run down to the surf. This is all before school. And, uh, and then you'd go to school and then you'd throw your bag on the bus and it, I was the last stop, so it would take about 30 minutes for the bus to get back home. So I'd throw my bag on and I'd race. I'd run it in um, the 5K home. And so if you miss the bus, then you miss your bag and then you miss your homework and then you go in a lot of trouble. So, bam, I'd just be pelting down like a So you'd be racing the bus? Stretch. Yeah, because <laughs> it had to go out around the loop. Okay. And so I would pin it back along our main road. Um <laughs> And so I, I just remember going, wow, this is the best ever. Like, I just want to do this for a living. I didn't know what this was, but in a sense, I love movement, task, and just challenge. And I just went, oh, I'm going to do this. And then I realized what I was describing was being like an athlete. Of, uh, and I love that training concept. But I don't really know because there was no one telling me to do any of this stuff. Maybe I just from watching all the Rocky movies, sport movies, listening to radio, I was just making my own Frankenstein version of what an athlete would be and, and doing it. And I never really talked about it. Like I loved in the morning kind of sneaking out of the house before anyone was awake because we lived in a really safe area. Like I didn't realise when I was really, really young that my parents would actually hop up and be in a car and kind of look from the top of the hill and see me burn <laughs> down the bottom. So they kept an eye on me. It wasn't just this free reign. But so um, it I sounds thought like, I was, It yeah. sounds like your motivation, you know, you hear a lot of athletes' motivation. It's like, yeah, I want to win. I want to get out there. I want to be the world champion. It almost sounds like your motivation comes from just joy. I don't. I must be. I'm just not sure because there was no pathway in our household to say that's where you'll end up like my parents weren't professional athletes they didn't really know what that what we were in such a small isolated area how could they imagine I remember coming home from school and uh, I had well we had soccer academy at the time I think I was about 11 and I, I came home from training actually and and the you know I had this letter and I said to mom I was like look if we just get this check we can go to China. And I was like 11. And I, <laughs> and to play soccer? Gone, yeah, to play soccer. And she's gone, what? We're going to China. And she's like, well, if you can, yeah, we can make it work. If, <laughs> you know, I don't know how they made it work with four kids. And, and I don't know where the trust came from in them that thought it would lead to somewhere. 
And and that's what I feel maybe these days we're always as adults doing things to in order to be rewarded for it or that, it, you know, it's worth our energy or worth our while. But my parents never questioned that. Like it could be in a million dead ends and I could be sitting here, no job, no education. and But it was quite the opposite. So when did you dedicate yourself to surfing? Was there a moment? Was there a light switch? Did it happen gradually that it started to take precedence or when did you start to get dedicate yourself to doing what you do now yeah there's definitely a little bit of a crossroads around 16 uh 15 16 17 so up until then i was just kind of moving my chess pieces around and whatever on that weekend said that it was maybe an elevated level for that sport so if it was there was a regional something but it was state running i would go oh well, i gotta go state prioritize state running and mm-hmm. then okay, there's this surf comp. If you don't do this one, then you, you know, it jeopardises your, your ranking for the junior, the World Junior Series or whatever it might be. So I just kind of moved my pieces and then all of a sudden the team sports, they start to clash at that level. Like when you're kind of playing Australian schoolgirls this or that or touch footy this or that, you can't really be there for obviously um, the enormous amount of, training load during the week and you miss a few of the camps and then they start to get a bit frictiony between the coaches uh, them kind of going well what are you going to do and that question started to come up a little bit um that's where I guess I really relate to Pez in that instance like at least Pez we played um <laughs> touch footy soccer all the way through together and Did she you? was like yeah she was the city um, well, being Pimble Ladies College, and I was a little country bumpkin kid, and we'd play city, country, city, country, uh, and then we would have this, like, our kind of third sport, you know, for her was cricket, and my one was surfing, and they were both in that, like, eclectic group of sports mm-hmm. that wasn't kind of the mainstream, um, and it's pretty wild that we both ended up in that state. You, you play it as long as you can, and then it just drifts, something just gives way and after for me a really um dedicated snapshot at my running from 8 to 17 it was just this moment where I went to the youth olympics and I competed in the 8 and 1500 and I just felt as though all the training like load and everything just this little pinnacle in my teenage career and I just never felt like I could um, put a foot wrong in those two races and I just kind of floated around the track and I stood on the dice and kind of heard the anthem and you would have thought that would have pushed me into going for uh, I guess going the distance in a running career but did you win the eight and the 15 yeah yeah I won oh. the eight and 15 and at the was, youth olympics yeah wow yeah. what type of it, times are we talking 208 for the 800 wow and the 15? Um, I was a 15-year-old, 16-year-old. And for, what was 15? Probably down to 417. Wow. So we were chipping away and it just never occurred to me that, I don't know, I just love the thrill of what it meant to run a race. Like it made no, surfing made no sense in comparison because like running, you put in the, hmm. I don't know, you put in those two sessions a day and you have kind of like all the flow of like long run, short runs, 1K reps, everything. And then if you went harder at it and then it would sort of accumulate into a better time and whoever crosses the line wins the race. It's pretty simple. It's not subjective, a, is it? 
nah, surfing is so different. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so for me, running was, oh, it was a joy. It hurt, like, so much. But the accomplishment of when you cross that line and doing times like that just, it was meaningful for me. And, and that, that was possible coming from the area that I trained in. So, so you moved to surfing um, 2008, just to bring people up to speed. Uh, QS, you dominated trying to get through to the main tour for those that don't know a great deal about surfing. The youngest qualifier in history at 17, junior world champion in 2007. Your first year on what would have been the ASP tour at that stage, that's pre-WSL. You come fifth in the championship, which is quite extraordinary, but you've come from a really sheltered background. All of a sudden you're getting on planes, different ways, different people, different experiences. What was it like at age 17? I think you were 17, all of a sudden to be thrown into the world of professional women surfing. Oh, yeah, it was pretty. It was a pretty wild ride because you were so young and we were like a full generational shift, similar to the, the tennis maybe saw. Like when Hingis and those came through and were winning at 16, it was just time for women surfing to kind of morph into, we'll start changing and evolving into what you're seeing today. And then it was like, boom. And then 17, you're showing up for your first world tour event. And you're like, oh, my God. And you're looking around and you've just got all your idols and icons and I'm putting on the jersey and Lane's in next to me and she's like the most intimidating competitor of all time, just smack talking you. And you just go, I don't even have a response. I don't know. I'm, I don't well, like Lane was giving I you a smack, was she? <laughs> yeah, all the generation before us. Well, what type oh, of stuff really, did they bring to the table when you were so 17? scary. Oh, and we didn't have priority rules for those that don't know surfing. Now it's quite um, gentlewoman-like where you get your turn. Like they put yes. your colour on a big board and they say, okay, priority if I've got the red jersey is with red. And so when that wave comes, your other opponent can't like strategically steal it off you and be on the inside. So before that, it's this all-out like UFC battle to get away. <laughs> so you're just paddling around and thrashing in the water and it was just... It was like the salmon run in South Africa, just everyone just... <laughs> and like, sometimes you wouldn't even get a wave. And these, a lot of the women were a lot taller and built and I was this little pipsqueak um, and they would like paddle you around the piers out of the competition zone. So judges can't even see you um, just wow. trying to hold the inside or they would swear at you or they would, uh, you'd see them in the – we didn't have locker rooms back then, but if you went to the bathroom, they're like smack-talking you <laughs> and you just gone, oh, what am I in for? Oh, and um, so it's really quite tame these days. It's all said in the eyes, Howie. You just have to stare down people. <laughs> Back to sale in a moment. Next up on the Howie Game, wow, we are stoked about this one. Aussie F1 driver Dan Ricardo is joining us on the show. How good. Now, as cool a cat as he is these days, Dan's journey to the top step of the F1 podium hasn't always been as smooth and sophisticated as you might think. I mean, I went in, I went in plenty of gravel traps as a kid in a go-kart, and true story, I, I would cry every time I would, I would go off. Yeah, I, I don't know why I would just break down. Like, I felt sorry for Dad, who would have to like run out and come and collect me. And I just felt I probably felt like a bit of a failure as well when I was young. Like, you know, spinning out and making mistakes, and I was probably just embarrassed. So I used to cry a lot. 
when I would make mistakes. Um, but yeah, that's a little little fun fact for you. I don't think I've told told anyone that one. That is episode 90 of the show in a few days featuring Dan Ricardo. Alrighty, back to Sally. So in that first year, you come fifth and then you have three years in a row where you come second in the championship, including your first wins, etc. So I want to talk about a few different events with you specifically before we talk about surfing more generally. Up to you. Do we talk first about winning or do we talk first about losing? Oh, they just go hand in hand, don't mm. they? I think losing, losing for me, it still, uh, maybe it is the common thread amongst the crew that are doing their sport and will do it for as long as they possibly can and just love everything about it. But you end up having this, oh, man, even to just try and conjure up that emotion, like losing, it just destroys inside of you it just rips your heart apart especially in terms of that build up to vying for a world title and you've just done everything in your power and you still I I, I think from that young age it's like rite of passage you got to go through all the different phases of where in that 17 and maybe 23 you feel as though it owes you something or you deserve something from this output and it doesn't exist but in a young (laughs) irrational brain sporting brain it's like oh and and just that whole essence of coming close to something it just keeps getting ripped away like it's like oh it's like right there and that one wave you needed or that point three of a score it just didn't happen and there's no reasoning in surfing You, you come out and you do your debrief and you write it all down but sometimes, like, the wave just didn't come. Like, what do you – it didn't – it's best guesstimation. And at certain times, it didn't come for 20 minutes of your heat. And there was waves every two minutes. Mm. And you've counted it all and you've done your bean counter and you know exactly in the lineup where that wave should break. And you've done all your homework. It just didn't come. And you just want a reason for it to be okay and you can't find one for a while. And I think that spins you out for a long time – it's just this emotional whirlwind, I, I, I feel, from just that your whole dependency and self-worth is still tied in as much as you want to say, no, no, it doesn't affect me. And you do all these interviews and you say, oh, I'm just so so happy and fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. Yes. Deep down, it just hurts. It's like someone just punching you in the heart and you just get so shattered but for some reason, there's something inside me that it would just tick over and I would use my next training session or I would use movement as therapy. So I, I feel, I think it was after like the third world title race that just, so when you think of someone like say Steph Gilmore in our sport, seven times world champ, Lane Beach seven times world champ. But for me, I was a part of, every one of those years with Steph and it felt as though there were some interchangeable moments where that could have been me and you do start to go ah that could have been me or maybe I'm not well none of this is worthy if I don't have the big cup and you just spin that over and you spin that over and people go it's just around the next corner and you just keep towing in believing there's this thing or monumental moment that's utopia well so so talking about the the big cup um, 
let's be really honest about it for a bit. So if you don't mind, 2010, mm. 2011, 2012, second, second, second. Phenomenal years. You are the second best surfer competitively, according to the judges, three years in a row. Mm. How's that sit with you? Are they brilliant performances and you're just really happy about the year and you're doing the interview like you say, I'm happy, I'm out here, I'm second best in the world, or is it I'm not first? I feel in a sense how I, deep down, I was so proud of what I stood up and in any one of those moments was my authentic best self. And then you just... I don't know. It just arose at you that you start to believe in the storyline that others give to you, that you're not enough and it's it's a failure. You're, you're not worthy. It's, oh, yeah, you must, you know, when you get that title, you'll be complete. And you start to think, oh, I don't know. It just erodes away until that becomes your belief. And you think, oh, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to train a bit harder. I'm just going to work harder. I'll just... I'll just do this and it'll all be better and I'll make my family proud or whatever diversion mm-hmm. or other ship you want to, you want to jump off your own ship and attach to something with hope and all these people are giving you hope. And, and I, I don't know, I feel that people always say, oh, that's the fuel to the fire, that's why you're getting up and you're going again. And it's just, it was, it's really now that I look back, it really wasn't the case. Yeah, it's just I've applied myself and there's this goalpost and a task and when you don't achieve that task, it just it's just going to hurt and it hurt, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stop. And it, reali- it made me realise my unconditional love for the craft and what sport is and that what people connect to. Um, I was, it was really interesting because remember like pre-Fontaine, yeah. kind of pre would always say, like, what are people connecting to? And... It's just effort, your full effort at something. Because I, I would kind of reflect and I think, why are all these people kind of on my journey and supporting me? I'm not the, I'm not the one with all the, the big cups lined up. Like, I'm not that one. And often I'd walk around or I'd go on an aeroplane and they're like, hey, Steph, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> and I will just sort of kind of ride along with it going, well, I'm not Steph, I appreciate you know about my sport. It got me a few, it got me into a few exclu- exclusive little clubs and stuff. <laughs> well, so so not, that, 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 um, that feeling, like we mentioned at the start, you're such a positive person. And I only ask you this because you are such a positive person. If you weren't, I don't think I could ask you the question. What is it like to have that constant, it's going to happen, bridesmaid, it's going to be your year next year? Like, like, How do you keep fronting up, Sal? Mm, it's a bit exhausting after, after a while. Um, you feel as though that, that leads towards, you, towards a finish line. There is no finish line. Uh, when... Even if you grab that cuff and I realise after all these time on, um, in that contemplation mode, after a loss I feel that's where you just have the best time marinating in that. Like at times I would, I, when a few of those came down to the wire, the next day I'd wake up and I'd put on my shoes and I just started running one day. And I was like, I'm just going to run as far as the hurt of my body overtakes the hurt of what this is. And so I just started running. I wasn't trained for this distance. 
But on the south coast here and all the way into Wollongong, past, I, I really wanted to make it to um, my brother's house, which turned out it was a marathon distance away. So I have run a marathon unofficially. <laughs> so, 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 so your theory was to run till yeah. the pain from running got yeah. over the pain from losing. Yeah. How many Ks did that take? Like you said, you'd, like how many Ks in before the pain of running outweighed the losing self? It took 45. Oh, jeez. Um, but I, I was full old school. But, you know, I'd pour the – I had one of these shirts that had the little pocket and I poured a bag of lollies down there. Wow. <laughs> and thought I'd just keep running and I wanted to make it um, – to my brothers in time for because Wide World of Sport would have been on, and if I'd missed that, I was just devastating. And so I rolled in the do- and my legs felt like stumps. I was absolutely cooked, and uh, and yeah, it was so, so interesting that I can go into these spaces of contemplation of um, you really think you're evolving at your sport and your craft, but you re- it's just evolving as a person, and they're my ways of shedding my layers, my skin. The one, we'll move off from this because I want to get to the winning, but the one that um, as a surfing fan that loves watching the surfing and as a fan of you that loves watching you surf and always wants you to do well, I think it was 2014 when you get to Maui and there was a few of you, was it Tyler and Steph and you, there was a couple of different ways the championship have gone. Five-time world champ Stephanie Gilmore comes up next against Courtney Conlaw here at beautiful Honolulu Bay. We'll be right back. Historically, you'll have to clear it up for me, but I reckon Steph lost in a quarter, which meant the door was open for you to become world champion again. Correct. And is that moment when you need the 8.37 to progress through that heat, ultimately win a world title, and then, then you enter the land of utopia, and it's just a big celebration. Oh that moment and you just give everything on your last wave and you get the opportunity to do so and you fall short by like 0.7 of a point. You get 0.7. 8.3. Yeah. You just go, oh, it's just, it's just so there and I just paddled off. So, so on, on that, on that, so if you'd won that heat, then you got the opportunity to be world champion or were you were world champion? Yeah, the way the pieces ended up falling. Oh, Tyler lost. Tyler, yeah, yeah. So it would have been, yeah. So, so you're, you, you've there. surfed the wave. This 25-year dream is in front of you. Um, I'm sorry to do this to you. No, um, this is but, cool. It's therapeutic. But, well, this is, the, this is the gist of what you're about and what drives you, I guess. Mm. So you're waiting for the score to come. You're hopeful. Are you thinking you've got the score? Yeah, well, I felt in that time because when you do surf those last waves and the adrenaline's heightened and you're in the ballpark, anytime you're in the ballpark, it's that that release in your body that that's it, that happened. It's cl- like it was close enough, the wave was big enough, it, in the context of the heat and everything that's gone down, that's the score. And you give you a little fist pump, like, ah, that's it. And you're waiting, but there's still underneath that undercurrent. Is just going, your heart's just going, just Patrick Swayze's dog. <laughs> it's just, it's just your moment. You're like in your sporting movie, just all oh, the slow mo. And then they call it out and they say, Oh, I'm so sorry. The guy, the, the commentator just said, It's short in the American voice. And I just, 
there's a big bay at Honolulu and I just paddled. Normally you have to paddle back towards the, uh, the cliff and walk up in front of everyone. Um, do your interviews, your press. And I just, I couldn't face it that day. Welcome back everyone. It is the Target Maui Pro as we are fresh off a disappointing loss for three-time runner-up Sally Fitzgibbons. This her sixth year on tour, second in the world for 2014 coming into this event and a, and a crushing blow, a surfer. You could never question her dedication, her regiment, and her focus to get a world title for herself and for Australia. Um, she's a media darling. Uh, she <laughs> stays com completely active when at home, when not surfing, and now she has to shift gears now and refocus for 2015. I paddled off into the distance, like the jet ski came after me and goes, oh, do you want to ride home? And I just said, not today, buddy, not today. And as I, I paddled off and like walked into the woods, there's these crazy cool like trails in the bottom of the bay and walked up to the road. Um, and then this guy was driving back. He said, I just watched that go down. He said, please let me get, I hitchhiked on the way back home in the <laughs> back of his ute. And I just reflected on, just all those little moments to try and ease, like it just, oh, everything inside of you just burns. And, but in that moment though, there's just all these moments of like these euphoric moments that have happened in my career, whether it's been when I got absolutely polarized and my eardrum blew out and I taped my head up or I did this, or I cut my foot open or all like those crazy obstacles. And I just in my head, I was like, it's just, it's just an obstacle. They're all obstacles and I'm just going to have to go again. If you don't get there, I hope that you get what you want, whatever that may be. If you don't get there, Sal, and you become, you've won 11 times on tour. I think you've been six times world number one. You've represented the country in amazing style. You're going to the Olympics. You, you've got just pretty much everything an athlete could want from a career, as opposed to your 21, 22 year old that thought you deserved it along the way. If you retire at 45 with no world title, but a lifetime of memories and success, and you've motivated and inspired a lot of people, will that be enough now Holy at mom. your age? Yeah, I, I feel there's been a major, the tide's turned. I feel as though when people say there's the, when you said, oh, you're more to, towards that when you get to the back half of your career. And I used to think, like, oh, does that mean you go on the downward slide and it just, you slide into the abyss and mm. it's all over? And I thought to myself, nah, these are the glory years because you've traversed through that first part and come out with more enthusiasm to go and keep going for as long as, I always catch myself going, I want to go as long as I possibly can at this thing this is insane and I go wow so all that you've been through has energized you to keep going and that's the big when the tide turns that the cup isn't utopia that it doesn't change it's not this big change to your life and you turn gold-plated or something and some other level on a computer game it's just that moment when <laughs> you you register it's actually all happening now and that's why I listened to whether I think I've listened to I counted it up this morning when I was in the gym, probably over forty hours of of our Howie Games athletes. Oh my god, sorry. Our Aussie, our, <laughs> our Aussie web of athletes to be 
in and amongst the energy of like how they've all gone about their careers and everything and and what they inject into I guess as you say like inspire people into people's lives and energize people to go do things that they're I guess passionate about it's just that moment where you register like it is all happening now and and it's absolute joy to wake up and know that it's just the the pride I take in my work that's the end goal it, to wake up and be proud of how I went about that training day how I competed that day and that that's what the cup is filled up and it and the thing is it just you wake up next day it doesn't stay set it's not a given you don't get it and it just stays put you don't get that feeling on your board or the way even when I was listening to um Healy talk about the tap of the bat when she's just like yeah. she knows when it's on but you don't just get to hold on to that every day and go oh I've, I've accomplished that and it's set and when I wake up it's there again and especially in surfing it's about this feel and you got to go out in the ocean and there's a story for you every day in that swell in that direction in that wind it's telling you something so all these things just reset each day and I'm happy to hop up and have a go at that if that makes sense so that's the when the tide turns that you happily doing your days and trying to get better at your craft and do it just a little bit better each day as opposed to 17 when you think you're not enough if you don't get the cup and that's your reward to me that's why you're a true champion because you've got an attitude like that That's the end of Sally Fitzgibbon's part A. See you on the flip side. Listener.